Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Good morning, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor of law at Washington and Lee University. This week, we are discussing debt and income inequality with two experts on the topic, Professors Fred Rary and Feniba Otto. I'll start by having them introduce themselves further. First, Fred. Hi, I'm Fred Wary. Uh, in my day job, I'm the Townsend Martin Class of 1917 Professor of Sociology here at Princeton and an affiliated faculty member in African American Studies. And I also direct the Dignity and Debt Network, which is a partnership between Princeton and the Social Science Research Council. All right, Feniba. Hi, I'm Feniba Otto. I'm an associate professor of public policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I'm also adjunct faculty with sociology and a faculty fellow with the Carolina Population Center. Great to be here. Awesome. And I should say Feniba is a fellow Blue Devil who just happens <laughs> to be working in the belly of the beast at UNC. But I down think the road, she's down the road. Down the road, you know, she's surviving. She's surviving. All right. Now, Feniba, your work has focused on the strain that being low income and needing debt to finance life advancements has had on family relationships. What difference does it make in a family when people start out their careers with a debt load? Yeah, so I think, you know, one way that we kind of start to think about these this topic and think about this area is um, are people able to make the decisions or they have like full um, uh, to kind of realize their um, their wants, their dreams, their hopes um, in a way that at a time that they are is most suitable for themselves. So what we kind of see in when, when we look at the studies and the, and the research that I've done is that that tends to kind of delay transitioning. Um, I've done work on family formation and relationships, kind of showing that uh, especially for women, uh, student, we got, we're going to get into student debt, but student debt um, has been associated with delays into um, transitioning into um, partnered relationships such as cohabitation and marriage, uh, much more likely to stay single. Um, we also see that, you know, if you take on, um, if you have a heavy debt burden, which is usually defined as debt to income or debt to assets, those um, and, and you struggle to pay it back, those have high costs, both in the short and long term for many families. So associated with higher costs of borrowing very early, you know, if you want to purchase things later on, such as homeownership or uh, long-term assets um, that are associated with wealth accumulation can be even hard to kind of access. Or if you're trying to access those things, it can be very costly um, to, a, to a large extent. So, um, I'll stop, I'll, stop, I'll stop there. We can go into, you know, to, to, to more of that, but that's kind of how we start to think about some of these costs associated with accumulating debt when you don't have uh, a lot of economic resources. All right. Now, Fred, what I found compelling about your work, particularly with the Dignity and Debt Network, is that it tries to remove the stigma of debt. And in my opinion, to highlight the difference between how the wealthy use debt and how the poor use debt. What are those differences and what has dignity and debt do, done to remedy those differences? Yeah, yeah I, so I guess the first thing to say is that debt is not always a bad thing. Um, 
And it is not sort of something that's so inherently bad, but something that we make bad for some folks. Uh, and so middle and upper middle income people usually use debt to invest in the future. Um, they buy a house that's appreciating in value uh, because uh, the neighborhoods that they buy those houses in are appropriately appraised. Um, they invest in an education from a place with a decent return on investment. And that said, it is also true that low-income consumers are more likely to go into debt just to meet ongoing basic needs like groceries and gas uh, than our middle and upper middle income consumers. And so low-income consumers are also likely to go into debt when faced with emergencies in their own family or in their extended family network. Uh, And the solution that gets held out to them is simply debt. The advertisers uh, are uh, targeting and marketing very heavily uh, to these uh, folks. Um, They are more likely, if you're uh, lower income, to get a whole lot more offers for credit products that have a higher initiation fee, that have a higher interest rate, that have harsher penalties, that have higher overdraft fees, than are your middle and and higher income consumers. And so part of what's happening is uh, that uh, you are, even if you're telling yourself, uh, we're not going to get into more debt, these envelopes arrive in the mail that tell you that you are pre-qualified. And it tells you sort of there's a large amount of money that you're pre-qualified for. Your family, your kids see these envelopes. They're sitting on the table. And when emergencies come up, they say, what do you mean you can't help contribute more money to that funeral? Uh, What do you mean you can't do more for the family? Because you apparently are good for it. And so part of what we need to sort of get really serious about is um, that people don't just make the decision about when to go on to debt on their own. These are family and extended family decisions. And these are decisions that are being really pushed by marketers. I, and, and, and the last thing I'll say on this is that one of the things that we've tried to be really conscious about is that respect, disrespect, um, having uh, being able to keep your head held up high has a lot to do with the kinds of products and services people seek. Sometimes people are paying more money just so that they aren't sort of in, uh, disrespected uh, when they go in to get that loan. And they know they're paying more money. Um, and so telling someone, uh, you know, um, you're paying too much for that loan, uh, you should try these other places. And they can tell you back, well, I've tried some of those other places and they treated me in a way that you don't treat an adult. Um, and so I, I'm going to go to a tried and true place and it's not as bad as some of the other places that are out there. So basically leave me alone. And so we have to get really um, uh, become a bit more realistic about uh, the way people are treated when they're handling their finances. Um, and and how how you can really be disincentivized by disrespect and paralyzed by shame. You know, something so I important. see that, yeah, yeah, totally. And I, and I was going to say something I see as a parallel between, you know, what you, you both opened with um, is are the ideas of what people are expected to do. Um, and the idea that when people get into debt, and even when it comes to student loans sometimes, but especially when they get into debt for necessities, um, we perceive it sort of culturally as it being their fault, right? We, we, we get, have this negative stigma. Um, and so it's expected that they are not treated with respect when they go get those products. Um, how does that stigma um, impact lending? And how does that stigma um, impact people's ability to use debt to climb out of poverty? And either of you could answer. 
I, I can start. I, I, I guess, you know, one thing I think about is um, a lot, um, especially um, in thinking about the student debt context, is that um, we, we individualize an issue and we make it the problem of the individual or individual decision making, then it makes it harder or we don't seek uh, policy based or structural solutions, right? So we say, you got into this mess, this is your <laughs> your fault, <laughs> you know, or poor decision making. Um, and then we also look for individual solutions, right? So education based solutions that, um, that, that are not serving to fix or correct or address um, many of the, um, the, 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 the pathways that led them to that, to that particular situation. And um, that were, that, that we, what we like uh, to believe and what we see is, is not necessarily associated at all with, uh, you know, financial literacy or issues of, of financial education. So I think that's, that's my initial risk, you know, I, I respond to what I think about a lot when we, when we, when people start to feel bad about that or, or the, um, the mechanisms that make people feel bad about um, taking on debt is that we really try to individualize this, this very um, structural, structural problem. I'm sure. yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and I think one of the challenges too is part of the reason I think we do do the individualization and sort of talk about, you know, if you could, if you just work hard enough and fight hard enough, is that when you do overcome and you have that triumphant story, you're really proud of it. Um, and the whole community sort of rallies around. Uh, we finally got some good news. Um, and, and, and so, and I was born in the very early seventies. Um, and I remember that before I entered kindergarten, um, uh, we moved uh, from like this very not very nice house um, uh, to a ranch home that that my parents built. And I remember when they were doing this, my dad did not trust the banks, and he did, and it, his his distrust of the banks wasn't sort of some kind of oh he's old fashioned. He had a whole line, a, a roster of names of people who had gone and gotten a mortgage. And as soon as there was a disruption in work because, you know, they were on strike or something else was going on, they took everything and they would be, you know, near the end of paying or they signed on to these deals where they thought they were doing a rent to own. Uh, there are all these deals that people were signing on to that were just um, tearing them apart. And so uh, somehow he and my mom, because the person who owned this land, they sold this. It was a black woman. She said, um, she sold it to them well under price. Otherwise, they couldn't have gotten the land and all these other things that came together in ways that otherwise we, we couldn't have done it. Um, but I, I remember sort of in that moment uh, being sort of made really aware that there are all these practices and policies out there that were getting in the way. And although we triumphed, we triumphed because a lot of things that typically don't happen, like you get land well underpriced um, and uh, you've got uh, one of the better unionized jobs in the area so that you have all these savings and you're willing to let your family live uh, very poorly until you're able to move. I mean, there are all these things that came together that typically don't come together. And so, um, so, so I, I, but the, the thing that, that that does, of course, is it, it allows us to say, oh, if you just did what Mr. Charlie did, you'll make it. And there are all these moments along the way where uh, Mr. Charlie, uh, but for uh, 
some call it luck and others call it grace, would not have made it. There are lots of ways Mr. Charlie would not have made it. And we had other relatives and people who were had the same moral fortitude as Mr. Charlie, and they didn't make it. Um, and so I think we have to get past these hero narratives in order to say there are policies and practices out there. There are marketing practices. Um, there are appraisal practices that just make it much harder, uh, particularly for families of color. You know, it's, it, your story is interesting to me because I remember my own grandparents saying, don't ever get a mortgage. Like, if you can't buy a house in cash, don't get it. And it's like, well, that's impossible, right? Like, how could you buy a house in cash? But for them, you know, they have these these horror stories um, and, and that's what they take. And so they think, buy the land, build the house, wait forever, take the, you know, do it all in cash because they couldn't trust the bank. You know, there was a gener- there's a generation it hasn't been long when we literally could not trust the bank. Um, but I think what, what is also interesting is how, because of that historical distrust of banks and lending, there's then shame in not being able to have the luck and the grace yes. um, to, to be the one who can save and get the money. Now, one thing I remember when I was growing up is there was certain debt that was good debt. And that good debt was student loan debt. Um, and any other debt other than if you did get a mortgage was bad debt and shameful. And the perception when I was growing up was go to whatever school you can get into. Doesn't matter if it's for-profit, nonprofit, any kind of education you can get, it's worth the investment. Has that been the reality? Um, and I'll say as another follow-up, um, if that isn't the reality, you know, what makes the student loan crisis so unique for people of color? Ooh. Well, I, 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 I'm happy to, so, so I, I guess we should let a few things sink in first. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so I think one of the things people don't pay attention to is that there are uh, a lot of folks 12 years after leaving college, if you're a black borrower and you went into, you know, you went into, into debt for your schooling, 66% of those borrowers owe more money. 12 years after, uh, they've been paying for 12 years. They owe more money in 12 years than when they left college. Um, And that's not the case uh, for others. And so, you know, uh, it's less than half of that for for whites. So 30% of white borrowers owe more after 12 years, 36% of Latinx, 21% of Asian borrowers. And thankfully, we have Benaba here who's done all this work, uh, she and Jason Houle, and, 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 you know, she, she can tell you that even when you uh, graduate, uh, you're underemployed uh, uh, with your uh, 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 college degree. And so, so we have to start there, I think, in order to be also realistic about sort of people starting college and not finishing. Um, so six years after starting, um, 60% of white students graduate, Asian students graduate, but only 54% of Latinx and 38% of Black students graduate in that same time period. And so, this thing that looked like uh, the great promise, uh, and we sort of went in to the great promise, um, and it was supposed to be mobility. Yes, it's better to have a college degree than not for mobility, uh, but you're not getting the same payoff that others are getting. Um, and if you don't finish, which is uh, sadly, uh, the, uh, a lot of folks don't actually get the degree, then you've got debt and no degree. And so this is one of the things that I think is just, uh, one of the great uh, tragedies of, of public policy. But 
but been about like I, this is this is your wheelhouse. No, you, you raised uh, many of the important points that we speak to often um, when we're discussing this. Um, is one the uniqueness of Black borrowers in this discussion? So, um, you know, if we look at the numbers on aggregate they tend to reflect kind of what we hear often in common parlance around, you know, going to college, having to take on debt, and then paying it off, you know, in the, under the standard plan, you know, maybe in 10, 20 years, depending on on, on, on your income and, um, you know, how you're faring. Um, but when we start to kind of disaggregate the data, looking into especially, um, um, you know, particular groups, um, and, and, and especially Black borrowers, in, you know, when we control for, we adjust for, account for, I'm trying, trying not to use too much jargon, <laughs> but take into account all these kind of factors related to institution, like Brad said, where institution you went to, um, whether or not you finished, whether or not, you know, you, um, uh, I don't know, even like family structure or financial literacy, like independent of all of that, Black borrowers still have accumulated so much more debt and are struggling with repayment, with default and delinquency. So I think the narrative around good debt is tied to, yes, a lot of empirical studies that have shown over the last, you know, few decades that, you know, taking on debt and going to college, you know, and when we think about going to college, it's kind of investing in yourself, you're removing yourself from the labor market in hopes that you're acquiring um, the skills, human capital, or for whatever, you know, whatever you need, so that when you return to the labor market, your returns, your salary, your income will be so much greater um, and we'll be able to actually pay off that debt. That is theory is, is what is suggestive of this process. In practice, we see that this is actually has not materialized um, for many, um, and unfortunately many um, black millennials and um, generations who have come um, after them. Um, a lot of the work that we've done have tied it to larger uh, you know, wealth inequality that exists within our society. Um, but also there's a lot of, been, like, you know, when we discussed earlier, when we were discussing like credit markets, you know, credit predation on uh, families and students um, in this space um, with regard to the types of loans that they've had to take on and um, labor market discriminations that has been ongoing and persistent um, and struggles with, um, even if you have a degree, when you, when you transition out of college, struggling to, to pay down that debt initially and it compounding over time and, um, and the repayment systems and, and programs that are in place that just haven't been amenable to people's many um, different situations. Um, and we are overrepresented in those areas as well. One thing I'll add, I mean, uh, Fred, you know, uh, laid out a lot of the, the statistics is that, you know, when we see the programs such as, you know, the repayment plans, um, income repayment and PSLF, Black borrowers are overrepresented in these programs which is, I think, is, is a signal that, you know, um, we're struggling, right? Right? You, you, you've done all the right things, but are yet still can't pay off this debt. Um, and, um, and, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge that um, that, that, that has been happening and an ongoing um, and really um, is reflective of a system that, yeah, is not, broken. Is not, not <laughs> broken. <laughs> yeah, I hesitate yeah. to say broken, but broken, yes. You know, yeah. working the way it should or, or, or that oh. it was designed. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Well, well, and I, I hate to talk about the math because I am a law professor and we don't do we don't like to do math over there. But you know, I think people do not understand how 
you can owe more 10 or 12 years later than when you started. So would one of you like to break down the math of that? Like, how is it possible if you are on the proposed plan that you get when you graduate that says you should be able to pay this off in 20 years, how do you end up 10 or 12 years out owing more than when you started? Do you want to do the math, Senaba? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> nice testing me. Um, so the problem is called uh, like negative amortization. I don't know if I guess I said that, that came out of my mouth <laughs> correctly. Um, uh, but um, you know, interest on on loans. So if you defer or you um, um, are paying minimum payments, it is possible over time that the interest on those loans is growing at a greater extent than the, than you're able to pay down the principal. So there are a lot of people who have gotten kind of stuck in this position where they have been just been paying the interest and not necessarily paying down the principal. And they and it's ballooned <laughs> to an extent um, that you can actually owe more than you originally took out uh, for the loan. Um, there are lots of different, I guess, process, I would say processes or ways that people who have ch- tried to mitigate when they, when they are struggling with, with paying back loans. And it's really like, you know, you because um, you don't go into default, you put like a dollar or something, you know, something something down on it. But just by putting a little bit down doesn't make the debt go away. It just extends the period. Um, and in that process, um, especially, you know, with regards with, with, with loans that are don't have like federal protected loans, such as private loans um, in, in particular, they continue to accrue a lot of interest over time. So hopefully that was a good... <laughs> No, that was, that was exactly that. what I was thinking. <laughs> but, but hopefully I did a good job. I don't know. Friends, yeah. I, I mean, you know, one thing I try to tell my <laughs> students, one thing I try to tell my students is what I was told when I was in, in law school. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can pay on some of the principal, if you have private loans from undergrad, pay on some of the principal of that with any of your extra money, if you have it. Um, and it was because of this compounding interest in negative amortization and all these things that I ignored when I took classes in undergrad on economics and statistics and all of that, um, that then have an impact on your life later on. Um, and I think it's, you know, people don't understand what happens if there is a family emergency and you call and request a forbearance. They don't understand that the interest is accruing and interest is compounding and it, it just balloons and grows and grows and grows. You know, and as Fred opened with, you know, we we have a disproportionate amount of family emergency and needing to borrow to survive. And so if you're that one family member who got out and you're helping other family members, so you're skipping your loan payments to help other family members, your student loan debt is also multiplying on the side. Yeah, but um, the other I thing think- too, yeah, yeah I, on this, I just want to add that um, uh, a lot of people don't fully understand that... Uh, you know, it's even though our parents and everybody wants to help you, but they help you in the way that they can. And typically, uh, um, in a lot of in some communities of color, uh, a lot of money goes from the child to the parents um, uh, as soon as you're able. And so, even if you're making your payments, you're not going to make those payments. Um, you know, at as fast as a higher rate because you're trying to keep some cushion because you're expecting. Uh, that somebody from the family is going to be in need um, in some way, and so, and so uh, on the one hand, there's the you know whenever you get extra money, put it towards that principle, but that's harder to do when you've got sort of you're in a society with a broken um, uh, social safety net. So uh, you are the safety net, um, 
And so, so you are sort of providing those safety net uh, function, but you don't get a tax break for providing safety net functions. Um, you're just providing them. And so I, I just want to, you know, make sure that I, 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 I uh, fully um, acknowledge and, and make sure that people can better see that it's not just someone not making the determination of putting enough down. It's how much else this, this unofficial that's being called on them to, to sort of send out of the household. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give a plug for Dorothy's uh, book, Dorothy Brown's book, Whiteness of Wealth, which which explores the tax implications and how the tax code also feeds into this system. You know, at, at, you know, as Fred said, you cannot take a deduction for helping your aunt or your uncle or your cousin or even your parents. You know, the deductions are only for traditional nuclear families. Um, and so if you have a non-traditional family where you're helping everyone, you know, in addition to being taxed at a higher rate because you're single, um, you also are not getting any benefits for paying that medical bill for the cousin or helping out with that funeral um, from the tax code. So it 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 compounds in multiple ways. Yeah. Now, Fred, you have a great you had a great segue for me because what I wanted to talk about next is, you know, we were told that education was our way for social mobility, yeah. um, and it hasn't been the reality. Um, so I would love for you to talk about how this attempt to achieve upward mobility has worked out over the last couple of generations. Oof. Oof. So, um, so th- I think there are two things to, to keep in mind. Um, the first one is that uh, we've done much better on income than we have done on wealth. Um, and so uh, whenever you see people saying, oh, um, African Americans are doing fine, oh, Income-wise, we're doing much better than we were doing. Wealth-wise, no. Um, and so whenever people also push back against any suggestions that some debt should be canceled, and they're saying, oh, rich people are going to benefit, the rich people they're talking about are those who just got, you know, they just finally got a job with decent income. They have no wealth. And uh, and those are the ones, and, and they typically are people of color, those are the ones that... Uh, uh, that the pundits are saying um, they're people with higher incomes who are going to benefit. And, okay, so so it's it's a wealth story. Um, I think the other thing is um, uh, sometimes it has worked out if you've managed to go to a wealthy school, um, and so uh, we look at schools. And we say, oh, they they all have this really high price tag, and they're you know especially the privates. They're they're super expensive. Um, and then you have to, but then the, what we're not asking ourselves is, well, how wealthy is that school? And, you know, um, to what extent are students finishing without debt, uh, or with low debt? And there you get a, a lot more variation. And so you have very expensive schools. Um, and, and sometimes the more expensive the school is, uh, the more likely it is you're not going to pay anything. So, uh, I mean, so Princeton, and this is not to say that Princeton does everything well. Um, but they, uh, Princeton was the first to say that low and moderate income families uh, should not become indebted for a good education. Um, and so 80% of our students who graduate are debt-free. Um, and, 30%, and that's compared to 30% of students who are going to colleges across the country. And that's a wealth story. That's both the wealth story and a leadership decides to sort of put that wealth to, to good use. Um, and it's also sort of a story of uh, deciding that young people should not uh, start their adulthoods in deficit. Um, it, 
if we can help it. Um, and, and what would that mean for us as a society is if, we, if we're not starting our lives in deficit. And so I think, yeah, so, yeah, so part of me thinks that, um, uh, you know, there was a promise of mobility. Um, and we, we got some mobility in terms of income. We didn't get so much in terms of wealth, um, but that's something that we need that we can work on if we if we decide that we're going to get serious about um, so the policies and practices that got us here. You know, now, what does it take to build the wealth and to to bridge that wealth gap? Because it's clearly not just the income. But yeah, this is where, where I'm always looking to, to my uh, my economic <laughs> colleague because uh, I know because I know she knows how to build it, <laughs> and 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 she also knows what takes it away. Uh, but uh, a, a bit of a oh wow! <laughs> I mean, uh, policy wise, it's going to take a lot. You know, um, this, if we're talking about especially the racial wealth gap. Um, you know, there are, we could, we could think about, I think, um, addressing the exploitation and the, the, the historical legacies of discrimination and, and theft that have happened over, you know, if you want to go back starting with, you know, slavery and post-slavery and Jim Crow and, uh, everything to redlining and current day, uh, you know, um, housing and credit market discrimination, um, and that really sets to make the case for reparations for uh, for African Americans. Um, but um, you know, and then there's also other promising policy proposals on the table that people have discussed, such as opportunity accounts or baby bonds kinds of measures that would ensure um, children with a trust account. Um, and this is really like you know thinking bold and innovative. I, don't, I mean, I say bold, innovative, innovative, but among <laughs> scholars of inequality, you know, this is what it, this is what we this is what it would take because the the disparities are just so large and so um, um, intractable, I would say. Um, and to believe that people can save their way to closing these gaps is just not is not going to happen <laughs> in the sense. Um, we I can even pull on like a more current example. I mean, Fred has raised often like a. a quite a bit the appraisal, differences in appraisals of homes, but we saw, um, you know, recent reports of what happened during COVID when people, a lot of people were refinancing their homes and we still, we see that African-American households were denied the ability to refinance their homes or their mortgages, um, especially uh, I feel like Wells Fargo denied disproportionately, disproportionately a lot of Black homeowners, right? So, you know, attempts to kind of, you know, better, you know, individually, fix your your wealth standing um is still you know we can still pick up uh, evidence of discriminatory practices or you know disproportionate um access to the same products that are wealth building for for white americans um and i just it's it's just going to be hard to get there without uh policy initiative or or you know um and a very proactive policy that um is non-race neutral in my, in my, in my, in my opinion, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and what I, no, I love your opinion. <laughs> like that's, that's <laughs> one reason, you know, I have you here because, you know, what I find interesting, you know, as a lawyer and someone who deals in policy, um, you know, the easiest way to be race neutral is to focus on income and focus on personal responsibility 
and, you know, maybe even make changes to the banking rules or make, you know, make affirmative changes so that Wells Fargo pays yet another huge fine. Um, or so that, you know, we work with to unionize and do things to get that individual income up. But the individual income is not enough. And sending people to, um, what is it, financial literacy programs is not going to make up for the fact that, like, there's more month at the end of the money, right? Like, you, that, you, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and, you know, financial literacy is not going to fix that at all. Uh, yeah, it's I, helpful, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but it's, um, it, it, and yeah, I, I will say that it's helpful, especially for those for whom have been able to secure some financial footing and some security, right? How to build upon that or to try to um, maintain some stability. Um, but really, um, it's really hard to manage zero resources, I guess, or to, 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 you know, you have to have some resources in order to kind of make those, those discussions. And I will say that like a lot of wealthy people rely on financial planners in order to build their wealth. They're not, you know, sitting at home, you know, educating themselves. They, they rely on experts to, 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 to do this work. So. Yeah. yeah I, I, yeah, I, I didn't realize how, how much that happened, Philippa, until, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but you you join the faculty, and then they say, "Oh, um, there's this wealth advisor you have access to." And in, in a lot of places, you know, like a wealth advisor, and you go in, and they run all these numbers for you, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't realize that." Like, oh, you're not supposed to. Don't worry. And even things that I should have like checked ahead of time, they just tell you, "Oh, no, we're here to make sure that things work, and we're going to automate some stuff." And like they're there to make your life easier. Um, and that was a, such a different experience of getting advice than uh, what I know that other people have experienced who are lower on the income scale who go in and they're just being told everything they've done wrong. Um, and, you know, you just need to cut out all the fun stuff and, 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 and don't buy that expensive coffee. And you're like, the coffee didn't do it. <laughs> I, you know, right. coffee didn't do it. Um, and so and so it's such a, even a different sort of transactional environment um, when you are considered someone who needs to be taken care of and looked after and, and given expert advice versus someone who needs to be disciplined and reprimanded uh, for sort of somehow not doing something really heroic and nearly impossible. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, it's, it's a different world. Um, and it's, you know, the first time I worked at a big law firm, all I could think was, would it have been nice if my parents had this information, um, that, that now is just free to me in a conference room whenever I need it, or that's on a 1-800 number. Um, you know, if their income combined is the same as my single income. They could have been managing their combined income in the way that I was managing mine. Um, and we could have had better outcomes, but they just don't have access to the information. You know, the, the other thing people don't have access to the information about, um, you know, Fred made a comment about wealthy schools. And um, when it when it comes to student loans, you know, not all student loans are equal and not all schools are equal. Um, and, and we've had it, it, just as we've had predatory lending, we've had predatory institutions as well. Um, and, and one thing I would like for listeners to know, you know, if you're sending your kids to school, um, you know, obviously state schools are a great bargain, but there are a lot of schools that are these wealthy schools that Fred mentioned, where, you know, everyone who makes less than a certain amount of money is getting a full ride or getting zero debt. Um, and, you know, it's like Princeton and Duke and Stanford and WNL does it. And, um, you know, I counsel a lot of people who, who just assume that whatever state institution that's going to require them to take out 40% of the costs 
is going to be better. And they, they're in the L, they're in the GPA and testing range to get into these schools where they can go for free. And it, it truly makes a difference. Now, now, Finneba, your work on student loans and, and families is very interesting to me because um, it, it kind of touches on some of the predatory stuff that, that we've discussed earlier. Um, but I would like for you to tell us a little bit more um, about how the burden of student loan debt has impacted quality of relationships and development of new families and, and what that means for our culture. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I, it's interesting because I think when I first started this work, it was, um, you know, I was kind of finding that um, debt <laughs> and um, what I kind of was, I don't know, calling or kind of categorizing as um, resources that take uh, or products that took resources out of the household were uh, negatively related with relationship quality measures kind of, and that's kind of what we were seeing when we looked at like couples and, you know, who had, you know, had to joint credit cards and those kinds of, you know, these kind of products that were just kind of um, not building both together, not building resources in the household together. But it's been interesting to kind of, you know, uh, continue to be in this area over time, um, especially with regard to the student debt discussions, because I did kind of argue in some of my earlier papers that uh, it was a deterrent, <laughs> but, but now, you know, uh, to, to, to kind of long-term relationships, uh, but having spoke with, you know, um, and done some interviews with couples and people, uh, you know, um, who have now kind of come of age in this debt crisis, um, I would say that we probably would find it a little bit weakened, <laughs> those, those kinds of relationships or those, those, those things that I found because um, it has become so ubiquitous uh, to have debt. Um, and uh, like we discussed, you know, the idea of it being good debt versus bad debt. I think these are discussions that people are openly, you know, probably didn't have before, but now are having within their homes and their households. Um, and so, you know, you have debt, I have debt too, <laughs> you know, so what are we going to do together, right? And then they start to have these conversations about, you know, um, you know, working, you know, if this is somebody that you want to, let's just say, build your life with, or potentially, you know, um, have, build a family with, um, what, what, what is the debt going to mean for us planning rather than not necessarily ending the relationship or not building a household together, but what, how does the debt going to, um, and they incorporate the debt into their, um, their planning portfolios in a sense. So that's been kind of interesting to watch. I think, you know, again, we have to do some probably more research around this, but I think the discussions that were probably ones that were brought or not had are probably a little bit, are probably, have probably grown and then incorporated into discussions of, of family planning and, and future, and future planning. Um, to an extent that it probably, um, and especially I would say within the younger generations. And I've actually picked this up quite a bit on my students, <laughs> you know, I haven't been teaching it for that long, but I've been teaching long enough that I, you know, ask some questions around, you know, you know, do you know how much debt you're having? Or do you know, you know, uh, how much, you know, you're, you've taken out and, you know, in the span of 10, 15 years, there's really been a difference in, um, in my observations uh, of how knowledgeable they are about, the you know what 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 they uh, what they're carrying or how much they are taking on and I think that's has largely been a result or um, a result of the, um, the the nature of the discussion being becoming more common and more um, 
uh, not popular. <laughs> That's yeah. not the word I want to use, but, but you, you understand what I'm saying um, to a certain extent. So um, I think it's, it's, it's a question. I think it's still as a factor, but I, but I, I think it may have changed a little bit in this orientation of how it is impacting uh, or affecting um, relationship growth over time, especially for young, for young adults, for, for younger generations. Yeah, I would say what I see in my students is who are, you know, they're all graduate students. Um, you know, I see discussions of we're not having kids until, um, right? And that seems right. to be the difference. And, you know, I can right. even see, you know, I've been teaching since 2015 and I can see, like, I can kind of gauge wealth mm-hmm. by who had kids first, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if they didn't come into right. law school with, with children already. And it, it it's, you know, I'm not an empiricist and I don't do the, the data, but just looking at it, it's like, I, I know which, I can tell which of my students had no student loans um, and they tended to have children first already. Um, and so, you know, some of my students have five-year-olds and some of my students are just having their kids, you know, at 30 or more. Um, and it's because they are having that conversation about debt that I don't think we had when we graduated. I would say when I was in well, school, yeah. I kind of thought I must be the only one who hasn't paid off their loans. That's mm-hmm. what I thought when I was working, right? It was like, everyone else clearly has paid off their loans or like everyone else clearly has it more together, or didn't borrow as much as I did. And so it was revolutionary for me to wait, be like, oh, wait, we're all still paying our loans because we just didn't talk about it. Uh, we didn't talk about how much we were borrowing in the 90s. We didn't talk about, yeah. you know, how long it was going to take or that six figures of income didn't mean that you could pay off, you know, six figures of debt quickly. Um, and it was just hard to make that calculation as an 18 year old. And I think we now have given people more knowledge. Now I do have one more follow-up for y'all before we get into future predictions. Um, there seems to be a current trend towards encouraging low-income students to plan within their means. Um, so we're seeing more of go to trade school or do community college first because it's free, um, or skip the private schools. Do you think that's a better plan? Is that the right thing to tell the younger people to just skip out on student loans altogether and and educate yourself within your means? So, so okay. So, the, so the, the pro, there's a problematic part and there's a practical part. The problematic part is that you're basically telling a group of uh, students um, uh, that you you can't have what other people have, even if you have the capacity to perform well. Um, so that's so that's the that's the problematic part. The practical part, however, is making sure that we are not sending um, them into the lion's den. Um, and that's a policy problem. So, so I, I, I wish that we did with student loans what we do uh, with uh, home loans. Uh, so when I went to buy my house, and they said we're gonna you're gonna give, get a loan of this house, but somebody's gonna do an appraisal. And um, if it's if it's if the neighborhood's not right, if the property is structurally unsound, you can't take out that much money. You can only take out as much as what it's worth as far as, you know, the market is concerned. And we didn't want to do that um, for education. And, and it's okay if you're, you don't want to do it for education, but then you got to pay for it and not put it on the back of these individual students and their families. And so, so part of it is it just seems unfair 
that you lure them into the system and you tell them that the system's fair and you tell them that the that the lender is honest and then the lender doesn't do due diligence and they're like oh you know if you take if you go to a school you're not getting the return on investment and you end up with all this debt that you can't repay you know bad on you but you can't easily discharge it and we're going to hunt you for the rest of your life so that's so that's that's my problem with the, with the whole thing about telling students you know uh, you have a limited set of options instead of telling uh, the lenders uh, and our and and our government uh, you have to be responsible and you can't sort of put a whole bunch of debt on people when you know they're not going to be able to pay it back. Uh, and uh, we need to also be realistic about sort of Pell Grant is is like half of what it used to be worth, and we're not investing in um, in our public institutions. You fix that, and you and you like largely fix the problem, uh, but you also need to like cancel a bunch of debt that you know people can't repay. Um, and so that's where I, I I land on this is that uh, they need to be sort of given the warning of you don't go into the lion's den, but then we need to make sure the lion's den gets shut down. Uh, so that's so that's that's where I I come out on this. I love the idea of appraisal um, of of institutions. Because we know, I won't name any of them, but, you know, they, they kind of prey on the students who can't move away to school and need to be able to attend school while working full time. And so it's like, oh, you can get online and go to school at night and do it from the comfort of your home. It's just going to cost you as much as going to Princeton to go to this school that is from your house. And there's no warning. And they just fill out the forms like everyone else and get all the money that they need. And often don't finish and often have the debt load. Um, and so there's, you know, they're predatory institutions, just like they're predatory lenders. And, and oh, yeah. okay, can I, can I put a point on this one? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the other thing we don't, we don't see is those schools will call those prospective students every day mm-hmm. and until they get them to sign on the line. And they'll like, and, you know, when they call, they're nice like, and, and they're persuasive and they're paid to be persuasive. They are hounding them every day to get them to sign. And so you have this person like, oh no, I'm 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 finally investing in my future, because someone convinced them of that, and they did it every day, and then that person who who convinced them to come in disappears. Like it's it's sort of the shadow agent. So part, that's the other thing is that we, we we are also acting as if this person is like just looking at a whole bunch of objective information, and that there's not sort of an entire team of people whose job it is to get them to sign and who will hound them in ways that are persuasive until they sign. And so that's the other part that I think it's just, um, I want to say criminal, but you know, I, I think that <laughs> it means a different thing for the lawyers than it does for the sociologists, but I think it's criminal. I would say unconscionable. Okay. That's, that's, okay. that's the compromise. It's like, you yes. know, it's, it's our step down from going all the way to crime. <laughs> Right. But it's it's not it's not it's not fair. Right. It's it's you know, it's taking advantage of someone who just doesn't know any better. Can I also say that, you know, to to your to that question and it speaks to Fred's uh, first point is that usually, you know, I I think a lot when we hear those kind of arguments or, you know, all thinking about alternative pathways. um, And, you know, I kind of like to flippantly flip the script and say, well, would you send your child or, you know, people who are kind of putting forth these kinds of narratives um, and instead of correcting the system so that it can be inclusive and in a ways that um, allow for people who are financially strapped or, you know, financially don't have the, the resources 
Um, instead, you're going to create an alternative path and, you know, separate is not always equal, you know, to kind of go down that, that road. So it just makes me what, always kind of question the, the messenger around, around some of those, because I, you know, I always want to ask, well, where did you send your children? You know, like, and how were you able to make it so that you know, would you send your child to, you know, and, and, I, and I, by no means am I saying that those alternative paths are less than it's just, you have to be weary and questioning the motives of the individual for whom they are putting forth this option rather than being reflective and thinking about um, the, the the situation that created the, 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 this, this, um, the scenario to happen. Yeah, they, they will actually say, if you give them time, everybody shouldn't, doesn't need to go to college. Everybody shouldn't be here. Everybody who's here shouldn't be here. Um, and I'm just like, um, so who, who is it who's here who shouldn't be here? Who shouldn't be here. Uh, mm-hmm. And who should be here? And, Absolutely. And then they get quiet. Uh, but yeah. thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely, you know, it, it's a dog whistle to me when people say that, when it's like, those people should go to trade school. Those people should go to community college. Um, and I think we all know what the dog whistle is, right? We know what they're signaling when they say that uh, it's, it's not a viable solution. So for our last few minutes, um, I'd love to speculate about what the, what the future could hold. Um, and so I'd like to have each of you just say, you know, what do you think the solution is? Like, what would it take to obtain more equitable income and access to credit? Um, and, you know, I always say, this is my, if you could wave a magic wand segment, like <laughs> nothing is too pie in the sky and it's truly your opinion moment. So Finneba, uh, let's start with you. What do you think it would take um, to yeah, fix I, You know, I was gap? thinking about this. It's, it's hard. It's hard. That's <laughs> a hard, it's honestly a hard question. And for someone who's like sits and thinks about these things all the time, I was just like, oh. <laughs> what I would say. Um, but you know, I, I will, I will give an answer that I probably, you know, for, for today, I don't know. It may change if you ask me tomorrow <laughs> what my response to this might be. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about, um, you know, kind of like basic things like raising minimum wage and allowing, you know, thinking about workers' rights, kind of the, some of the stuff that we see happening with social movements, you know, where, where people are kind of focused right now, um, thinking about those kinds of like, uni- like allowing people to unionize and, you know, really thinking about um, what, how rights have shifted over time and who has access to power <laughs> through, through, through money and resources is, is what I would, um, would kind of, uh, answer today. I would also, I was also thinking a bit about like um, institutions that have been created to kind of help consumers, such as the CFPB, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, like if they are allowed to actually fulfill their mission and not be thwarted or not, you know, be, um, you know, we could really um, address and, and, you know, uh, and do more uh, to kind of help consumers out. So that's, that's what's come to mind today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'll yeah. say the oh. benefit of being an academic is you get to change your mind. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to be writing a long time. I can I can write this and then write the next paper that challenges what I just said, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason we can change our mind is because we are open to evidence. Uh, and so part of what we do is we say, given what we see today and as best as we can assess it, this is what looks like the best solution. When when we get new evidence that says, your some of your assumptions mm-hmm. are wrong, something's not actually going the way you think it's going, we pivot. Um, and so, cause we don't have to hang on, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, I've gone to Sunday school and, 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 you know, the word is the word. Um, 
we have to be able to pivot based on evidence. And so I think one of the things that we know for sure, um, and, and you know, part of this is looking at work that FEDABA has done, um, is that uh, the student loan crisis has widened the racial wealth gap. Uh, uh, and so, uh, how do you so how do you fix that? You have to cancel some of that debt. Um, there, it's it, it, it's it's a math problem. So if you've got this loan uh, that's uh, disproportionately impacting uh, black and brown borrowers, and it's widening the wealth gap, even uh, as people are getting higher education, you just have to cancel the loan. You just have to cancel a bunch of that debt. And we know that canceling up to fifty k, and if you do at least thirty k, it has a huge impact on, on those disparities. And then you've got to say, you know what? We're going to support students uh, to kind of get go into college um, by you know at least doubling the Pell Grant, and we're going to uh, make sure that when you enter adulthood, you've got uh, some kind of seed capital and the, the idea of the baby bond. So there are a couple of like very, and then we're going to really strengthen. And the last thing is strengthen our consumer protections, so that you're not uh, being able to be like roughshod, treated with disrespect, and put into a lifetime of uh, debt peonage. So that's that's that that's where I come out on it. We only have a couple minutes, but I'd love to get a hot take from both of you. Um, do you have an idea of a number for student loan debt cancellation, or do you think it just should be blanket across the board? Fenebo, what do you think? Do you have a number? I think we can. I think we can do it all. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, um, but if, you know, if if, I, if we want to help black borrowers, we, it needs to be more than ten, and definitely yeah. closer to fifty, yeah. like Fred said. Yeah, 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 and and yeah, and so if you do fifty, uh, you zero out ninety five percent of distressed borrowers, and and uh, mm-hmm. we just ran this analysis. Uh, Charlie Eaton led the mm-hmm. uh, analysis of this, and if you do thirty, you zero out forty percent of borrowers who owe more after twelve years. Forty six percent, almost half of them. If you at least do thirty. Uh, uh, Thirty thousand. And if you do fifty thousand, you zero out sixty-seven percent of borrowers who owe more after twelve years. And so, so you know, the, the numbers are there. But we have to go big. That little that I hate to I hate to call it that little ten thousand. It's nice and everything, but it won't do what you need it to do. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining me. This has been an enlightening conversation, and I always love talking to both of you. So, thank you for appearing. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch rebroadcasts where podcasts are played and on the Voice America Network and our YouTube channel. Feel free to email me through the show page, or you can reach me on social media at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you both again for this conversation. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.